Welcome, everybody, to the Interventional Endoscopist Podcast. This is our interview series. And today I have a really special guest, a good friend of mine, Dr. Neil Sharma, uh, who was um, previously the president of the Parkview Cancer Institute and the director of interventional endoscopy oncology and surgical endoscopy programs. They call that the IOSE. And he was also chair of the Upper GI Oncology Tumor site team, as well as a program director of the Interventional Endoscopy Fellowship. So he was not busy whatsoever, and I didn't <laughs> do anything. But I say formally because, uh, Neil, I'd like to say hi, and uh, you can tell everybody what you're up to now. Hi. So first and foremost, thank you for having me on your podcast. I listen to the podcast and subscribe to it, and I would encourage everybody who's listening today to do so. I think there's a lot of unique things that you touch on in your podcast um, for a variety of perspectives that sometimes perhaps we overlook when we give academic lectures or other types of medical podcasts. So I, I love your unique perspective. So thanks for having me on. I think that's great. And I think everyone should be really listening to what you have to offer because every time I've listened to your podcast, I've gotten something really unique. And sometimes it's relevant to day-to-day practice, or sometimes it gives me a new perspective on how I approach particular problems. So thank you for having me. Oh, thanks. Thank you. So when you alluded, I made a recent move. I moved to Colorado. Uh, I'm here now, and we moved about three and a half weeks back. I stepped down from my position at Indiana and moved over here. I grew up in Indiana, essentially. I was born in Chicago, and we moved. I was really young uh, as my father got transferred. I enjoyed that role, and I still consider that place home, so I'm in a new land. Um, there's a lot of mountains here. The skies are really clear, so I can't complain about that, but I'm still getting to know the lay of the land. You know, I officially start here on February 1st, so... I have a little bit of time on my hands, just a little bit of breathing room, stepping down from the prior roles and into something brand new. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one another thing that we can do is in in, in six or seven months, once you've uh, completed this transition, we can you know redo another podcast about like how it went and you know and you know all your thoughts of it at that point in time. So that that's exciting. Uh, change is always tough uh, for for us as physicians and also for our families and stuff. So it's it's going to be a fun time. I think I think you can do great things up there. Um, so to continue, Neil uh, basically went to he went to medical school at the Medical College of Virginia, did fellowship and uh, a residency and fellowship at the University of South Florida, and then advanced endoscopy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. We always have to say at the Chapel Hill because it looks like Ohio State, you have to call it the Ohio State University. So, um, and I, you know, I, I chose to interview Neil uh, for several reasons. Um, you know, number one, I think anybody watching this podcast knows who he is now. Um, you, you've come a long way in the interventional world and, you know, you're a leader at Fight, a co-founder of it. And that's kind of how I met you as well. I think it was... Uh, DDW at San Diego. It was at a rooftop bar where everybody was having way too good of a time. And uh, <laughs> we were talking about some, you know, controversies in interventional endoscopy and training. And, and that kind of led to us creating this relationship. And then he founded, co-founded Fight with uh, Sham and and um, and some of the other guys, David Deal and those guys. And um, that's been taken off. And then also he's a leader in a kind of a new field in interventional endoscopy, which we touched upon uh, briefly on one of the earlier interviews I did with Tufi Kachami, where we talked about endoscopic oncology. And I, I think that's going to be one of the focuses of our uh, conversation today. But, you know, that was the main reason when we were talking you know, outside of, you know, the commonality of interventional endoscopy. This is a new field that I think you're pioneering. And it really, um, it, it's something exciting that we got to talk about a little bit more. 
Um, but before we get into that, just a little, you, you mentioned a little bit about your background, how, um, you know, you grew up in Indiana and uh, your father and mother moved, uh, moved there when you were a child. Um, but um, what about, um, kind of talk about how you became a physician, what were your influences, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And what kind of got you to being a doctor when you were a kid, other than the fact that all Indian kids are told when they're, when they're from the womb that they're going to be doctors. <laughs> so. yeah, I think yeah, that's probably number one, to be a hundred percent honest. My <laughs> parents are uh, immigrant parents. And that was a big thing. Like all Indian kids probably growing up here, at least in the United States, that's like the number one thing. Like you're going to go off and do well in school. And then, uh, you know, we'd like you to be a physician. Uh, I was lucky, you know, that I had parents that were there and told me to do that kind of work and, and emphasize the importance of education, to be honest with you. I, you know, I think I was a bit more of a free spirit. I, I like to think freely and, and try to be innovative even today to this day, uh, despite being within the constructs of a particular field, such as medicine that requires a certain amount of organization discipline. Um, but I was I was a bit more of a free spirit. You know, my younger sister, Neha, is a radiation oncologist, and I think she was much more organized and, and hit all of the... Um, milestones the way that exactly it should be done. I definitely did really well in school and I had that opportunity simply because of my parents emphasizing education. So I did the same thing, but I, you know, I was a history major, actually an undergraduate. Um, I chose to kind of go a different route in undergraduate, uh, right before going into med school. So I still did kind of the old, old traditional route through medical school, you know, three, four years of undergraduate and then move forward. But during that time, you know, I had the opportunity to focus on some of my other things that interest me, which include reading, literature, writing. I think I had the opportunity to do some public speaking and things like that at that time that I, I enjoyed doing um, and thinking outside the box a little bit because you know the liberal arts are just a different different mindset. But lo and behold, as with most Indian kids' paths, I, I followed what my parents had asked for and it went down the medicine path. But it was great. you know. I mean, honestly, for me, going from being a history major with a minor in English and philosophy and having no multiple choice tests, jumping back into medical school right away, you know, with no, no real gap. Um, what I found was what was most interesting was just the relationship with people. And, you know, when you go into third year, you kind of see suffering for the first time, right? You are usually relatively rather young in your life. And what you're jumping into is seeing people in a time of need. And that really woke me up, to be honest with you. Like that was a big thing. And then I enjoyed working with my hands. So I kind of found the right right space to deal with both of those items. And here we are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's uh, it's a common thing. And, you know, my, my daughter's a senior in high school and, and she wants to go into medicine. But I, I hope that for her pre-med study, she does something that really interests her. You know, like I, I, if biochemistry is what it is, that's great. But if she likes history or likes English literature or music or something, I hope she like, you know, studies those things because I do feel like it helps broaden your horizons later in your life. And so yeah, it's, it's a really uh, good thing. I'm glad. I mean, you know, it's, that's a little bit off the beaten path for most, uh, most of us. <laughs> to yeah, one, it's, it's, it's pretty different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So why GI though? Why medicine? Why GI? Other than, you know, you like to work with your hands, but what can you think of a mentor or somebody who influenced you during residency or med school that kind of pushed you in that direct direction? Yeah. You know, um, in medical school, you have to try to make decisions early. And sometimes unless you have a really strong exposure to medicine, you're not really sure what you're jumping into, to be honest with you. Right. Um, right. So you can kind of go with what you hear and know. I think I had a close family friend and a cousin. They're both ENTs. So I thought I was going to do ENT and start working on the early match. I did a lot of my elective second year kind of focusing on that. Mm -hmm. And then as I was going through third year, uh, I had medicine actually at the end. And I found that people were asking me questions all the way up to the end kind of that medicine rotation. 
and I couldn't answer any of them. Like those simple questions, as many of my friends who went from undergraduate were not in medicine, I just couldn't answer them. I mean, I knew the ENT questions really, really well. I kind of knew that world, but that was a really finite world. And then when I did the medicine rotation, I was like, wow, this is like what I thought in my mind, not being exposed to what medicine could be like or what it should be. And I was like, you know, I think this is probably the right route. I can still find a way to work with my hands in some other field within medicine. Um, but I think doing that core of internal medicine would make me feel like I'm well-rounded. I can answer some basic questions around uh, medical health that was asked of me on a regular basis. So I went down that route. And then that kind of leaves you with two things, interventional cardiology or GI, really, if you're going to get yourself into a lot of procedures, perhaps pulmonary critical care would be a third option, really. Right. And so, you know, when I went down that route, I thought just like everybody else, I'd just do interventional cardiology because I just didn't have the GI exposure. And I was more interested maybe in oncology, but um, that was more back again with the ENT background because there was a lot of head and neck cancer exposure when I was doing that research. And then I found as I did a GI rotation, um, there's a GI doctor named Matt McKinley. He's done a lot of Barrett's publications. He's out of New York and Long Island. And his son, Joe McKinley, uh, was my senior and when I was a intern in medicine. And he was like, hey, you know, you really should consider doing GI. And I was like, well, I, you know, I don't know much about GI. I don't really have an interest in that. I'm thinking of interventional cardiology. And he started talking about, well, if you have an interest in cancer, there's a, there's an opportunity with interventional endoscopy to do that. And, you know, it was something I had no idea about. And as I did some rotations at Moffitt Cancer Center, which is part of USF, right. I got exposure to people like Jason Klatman. Oh, yeah. Really kind of opened my eyes up that there is a field out there. There's an opportunity to deal with cancer be highly involved in hands-on work um, and kind of meld oncology as well as just the physical aspects of endoscopy together. So that's where we're at. And the seeds were planted in intern here. That's, that's awesome. So speaking about oncology, then let's, let's get into that because I think that's going to be the bulk of what we talk about today is endoscopic oncology. So maybe just briefly for the audience, like, you know, this is a term that you're hearing more and more of on social media a lot because of some of your postings and things like that and, and some of what Tufik's posting. But a lot of people don't, you know, you're an endoscopist and an oncologist. So can I maybe explain what what is this field and, and, and you know, what outside of what you just talked about, is there any other reason you got into it? Yeah. So, I mean, I had a natural interest in oncology going all the way back to even those ENT times, um, all the way back to medical school. But you know, I think when we get involved with interventional endoscopy, if you think about the bulk of the work that we do, a significant portion of it does intersect with the oncology realm, right? So think about it. Endoscopic ultrasound was invented, but maybe in the 1990s with the precipice that we can take a look at hollow organs with higher detail and start to do cancer staging. That's really what it was made for originally, like radial diagnostics, and then it, it advanced. A lot of that work actually was done um, originally by the IU group with, you know, individuals like Rob Hawes and Frank Grass and, and so on and so forth. And, and so they really built up this focus, but it was started out with oncology. If you think about a bunch of the interventions, whether that's uh, ablations, they're either for precancerous lesions like Barrett's, uh, which was a major exposure for myself and a big interest to do work at UNC with a uh, star like Nick Shaheen. It was oncologically focused, you know, and trying to prevent downstream cancers. When you look at things like cholangioscopy, cholangioscopy, yes, it can be used for breaking up big stones, but it can also be used to stage cholangiocarcinoma, and then we can do ERCP with RFA. Mm -hmm. To start to look at the totality of our work, ESD is another big focus of mine, as you know, and ESD, I primarily use it not for adenomas, to be honest with you. I, I predominantly use it for esophageal and gastric cancers, early neuroendocrine tumors of the rectum, 
um, that kind of work. You know, there are times where there's high grade dysplasia adenomas that I will resect with ESD simply because of size to get an on block resection. But ESD was really a cancer based surgery that came out of Japan. So if you look at that work, there's definitely a big focus of benign pancreatic mobility work, chronic pank, and so on that comes out of doing an interventional fellowship. But if you look most of the work that's out of EUS, enteral stenting, which usually is for malignancy, right? ESD work, and then it like the ablative work that's really coming down the pipeline, a lot of that's cancer-related work. So it seems like a natural predisposition for us to work in a realm side by side with medical and surgical and radiation oncologists. And so that's really the precipice of getting interested in oncology, bringing oncology into the endoscopy realm and letting us work synergistically. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so, I mean, how do you see this field kind of growing into the future? You know, like, uh, I mean, right now there's just a handful of guys that most of us can name who are, you know, I wouldn't say calling yourselves endoscopic oncologists, but, you know, you're affiliated with that world. And so when we think of that, we think of, you know, Sharma, Tufik, I think um, we think of, uh, uh, I'm blank on his name, <laughs> but a couple right. of the guys around the country, um, you know. Brian Eagle does a lot of that work. I think he wrote a book called Endoscopic Oncology, actually, didn't he? Uh, who was that? Uh, Brian Fagel, I think. Is yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he was at uh, Oregon, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, back in. Oh, no, uh, Doug, Doug, no, Doug Fiegel, he's out at uh, Mayo. Yeah, he's uh, yes. he was a chairman. <laughs> Howard mentioned him on this, so, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, he was definitely, actually, that's right, because he did have that textbook out in early 2000s sometime, and yeah, good guy, actually, he's still practicing there. So, um, but, I mean, who, who, who are in some, like, who should be getting into this? Should it be all interventional endoscopists? I mean, is this uh, something that, yeah, you, know, you do your interventional endoscopy training. Do you should you do extra training in endoscopic oncology specifically of the tissue resection? Because I know we all touch the subject as you mentioned. We're all going to be, you know, we're all doing EMR. We're all learning or trying to learn ESD as a community. We're all doing stents. We're all doing everything you mentioned. So, is this something that should be a separate field in interventional endoscopy, or should we all be kind of participating in that? Yeah, that's a great, great point. You know, I think when you ask that question. It's very intuitive because, you know, the question is, it doesn't need to be a separate field or should it be integrated into the totality of a complete interventional endoscopy program? And I think it should be the latter. I mean, I think we should all be participating in it. And I'll, I'll back up and just kind of take like 100,000 mile up view of totality of medicine, right? So if you look at medicine as a whole, you know, the number one cause of death has always been cardiovascular causes, right? Um, but that's changing and probably they predict by at least 2050, will definitely be cancer as the number one cause of death. More people will be living with cancer and dying from cancer than anything else. It'll be the biggest portion of the gross domestic product. I mean, just even recently, if you look at like cancer statistics on SEER database, it's almost 2 million new cancer cases in just 2023 alone, right? And then 609,000 deaths. The fiber survival rate has definitely improved. And a lot of that has been the advent of immunotherapy um, due to the new boom in medical oncology, as well as th targeted therapies, improvements in minimally invasive approaches to surgical resection and better outcomes from more morbid surgeries. But that boom in immunotherapy and targeted therapies will only continue to increase. So more people will continue to live with cancer. So if you look at like the five-year survival rate, which used to be around 49% five-year survival rate in the mid-1970s, and you start to look now at like 2012 to 2018, the SEER database says it's around maybe 68%. Yeah, but people are living with the cancer. So that means there's more palliations for us to perform. 
there's more opportunities uh, for us to get involved in this space. Additionally, you know, cancer accounted for about 18% of the 3.3 million recorded deaths in 2020. So that's like a significant portion of deaths, right? We know that more people will be getting cancer because they're living longer. They're surviving cardiovascular disease. We have better medicines. So even before you go see the interventional cardiologist, you may be on statins, blood pressure lowering medicines, and might be at the point where less of that uh, type of intervention is needed for cardiovascular purposes. So if you think of the whole thing as medicine as a whole, cancer will be increasing in total in total numbers. Mm-hmm. Cancer will be increasing in people dying from it. And the opportunity to help people living with it and living longer will all increase. And as I mentioned previously, a lot of our interventions are related back to cancer. Right. Maybe some of the hot topics. So just let's just think through some of the hot topics. Uh, USGJ, for example, that's typically done in malignant cases. I mean, it can be done in benign cases. In fact, we have a trial we're working on that now, but it's a very, very low proportion of that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, ESD, as you mentioned, a lot of that's cancer. I, and even if you don't do ESD and you're focused on the core of interventional work, pancreatic obiliary, likely a good portion of your US is related to looking for cancer, looking for precancerous changes, staging cancer, perhaps you're ablating cancer and so on. So I think it's important for us to do it. Maybe another question to ask is, you know, how do we do it? How do we incorporate that in a program? Yeah, absolutely. How do you do it? And, and, and if you're going to create a program, how do you start one? So how do you, how, what's your advice? You've done it twice and now you're doing it a second time. So what, what do you, what do you, uh, what's your perspective? Yeah, I think we have to start to speak the language of oncologists. So, you know, if you and I were to go take a road trip and we're going to go down to Latin America or we're to go to Japan, you know, it would really help us if we could speak the native tongue in order to be able to communicate effectively and collaborate with individuals in their native state. And that's how I look at oncology. You know, oncology has become much more complex. It requires really strong workups through multidisciplinary formats to be able to get the optimal outcome for their patients. So the old cancer model would be treatment focused, right? So you think of oncologists treating cancer. Actually, the forward-thinking model now, one that's really sustainable, that these larger systems, especially those ones that are per capitation, such as Kaiser and these and these bigger health systems that are thinking about how we can actually save lives in the cancer world are forward thinking. They're looking at early detection and prevention of cancer, which is actually the best way to treat cancer. It's the most cost-effective way, the least morbidity. It looks at diagnosis and getting the diagnosis staging right, because we know that certain aspects, if you put neoadjuvant therapies first, you'll have lower recurrence rates and better outcomes. And of course, treatment, which we mentioned as, as a cornerstone. And then finally, survivorship. So if you think about those different paradigms, like early detection and prevention, we're a hundred percent involved in that in that aspect. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, like pancreatic cancer screening programs would be a great thing that I would recommend every interventional program to have. Right. And that requires working very closely with your can- local cancer institute. Or if you're in, you know, don't have a major cancer institute nearby, that you still can be highly involved because you just work with the oncology groups that are in your region and you set up a cancer prevention program and it can be pancreas to begin with, but Definitely things like Lynch syndrome and so on need other types of screenings as well. And you don't have to be an interventionalist to be right. involved with that, right? I'm sorry. So that's a big one. And then diagnosis and staging would be imperative. And uh, we can get into this a little bit later, but you know, understanding the language of oncology means understanding AJCC guidelines, mm-hmm. understanding NCCN guidelines. And once you know AJCC guidelines, you start to incorporate those into your reports when you do a thing like an EUS or even a straightforward upper endoscopy for and esophageal cancer, knowing a seaworth score is super, super important. So I would recommend, you know, thinking about cancer 
speaking can- cancer nomenclature, which comes to understanding AJCC and NCCN, going to tumor boards, I think it's a cornerstone of an endoscopic oncology program. Okay. And remember that it, even if you're not directly most motivated by endoscopic oncology, by getting involved in these states, the total volume of your interventional work as a whole, stents, EUS, ERCP, and endoluminal therapies will significantly increase. So those others in your group who perhaps want to focus on chronic pancreatitis or benign biliary interventions, they're going to have their own work. You're going to have your own work. You're going to be working symbiotically, crossing over on call, crossing over on coverage, but you're going to grow the totality of the program. Absolutely. No, and I think one thing I, I really like what you said, you know, um, you and I have both been involved in the ASGE fourth year fellow uh, program as program directors and, you know, kind of on those committee meetings. And there's been a push for standardization on some of the things in training. And one of the weaknesses that our program had uh, is lack of tumor boards because we're at a community hospital that didn't really, wasn't affiliated with a cancer center. And, you know, you get busy and it's like, okay, who's going to go and set up a tumor board or work in one? But I think that's key, especially if you're going to be in the world of endoscopic oncology, you need to go to those tumor boards. Um, if for nothing else, other than understanding and learning about the patients, you'll get business just by showing your, your face up there, you know? But the thing is, you need to be in those tumor boards because you can then understand how you fit into the world of, you know, diagnosis and treatment and, and, and that sort of thing. Also, you know, a lot of oncologists don't really know what we can do. You know, there's still people sending patients for whatever biopsies percutaneously and, and because they just don't realize that maybe their community has a US or they don't realize what's available to them. So I think that's a, a key thing is the tumor board thing. If you want to get started in endoscopic oncology and you want to maybe grow a program, at, you need to get out there and meet people and be in the tumor boards and learn their language, as you said, and, and also be part of it, you know, be part of the process and, you know, work with them to set it up. <laughs> you, you hit the nail on the head, right? I mean, all of us would rather be in the endoscopy suite doing complex procedures than to be at another meeting or a tumor board. I mean, I get it. I totally understand. While I find it intellectually interesting, I don't imagine that everybody would necessarily, but it pays dividends, right? If you go to an upper GI or a total GI tumor board, you're going to see IRs always present. So that's how that field built up. We went from biopsies to doing things like Y90 and ablative therapies for cutaneous RFA, for cutaneous cryo, because they were in the space and they were involved in the conversation. So, So you definitely hit the nail on the head. You know, I'm part of that ASGE, I'm the vice chair of the ASGE's uh, special interest group for endoscopic oncology. We started this year and it goes along exactly what you said with the fourth year's fellows item is we have to recognize that this space is important. And when we want new technologies to come, so for example, USRFA, you know, people will ask me sometimes, hey, I saw that you published on ablation of insulinomas or you're doing USRFA, you're doing cholangioscopy and then doing ablative therapies for cholangiocarcinoma. How do you build that up? It starts... Five steps back by just going to tumor board, right? Getting those biopsies. You know, how do you put fiducials in? Well, if you're not having conversations every week with the radiation oncologist, it's unlikely that you'll understand what their needs to be able to fit them. Absolutely, and and, and that's the yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's as simple as being in a tumor board, even picking up the phone and, and calling them and saying, "I'm seeing this patient. They're going to come to you. Do you want fiducials?" <laughs> and 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 more often than not, the answer is, "Yeah, just put them in because we could always use them if we need them down the road." And you know, it just, it grows that business big time. Uh, but when you were starting the program back at Indiana, um, what were like some of the challenges and pitfalls that you kind of experienced setting up this endoscopic oncology group and, and, and workflow and practice model? 
Yeah, you know, um, my mentors uh, at UNC, you know, Nick Sheens is, is a big part of that. Um, Dr. Graham, Dr. Gangarosa, you know, the whole group, Dr. Barron's there now. I mean, it's just a great group. Um, I think just like any good mentors, you know, they wanted me to go to an established program first. And to be honest with you, that probably would have been what I did, had to do. But, you know, I happened to go home because my parents were there. So then I was in a situation where I have a skill set. I really want to do something. So I got to create it from nothing. And that, you know, happened to be at a not-for-profit large health system that's not 12 hospitals. So it worked out uh, in that sense that there was enough volume there to be able to do it. Um, so I think you have to find an area that has some volume, but that's usually not that difficult because the reality is this is a gap. And as you said, many people don't know what we do. So you could you can go anywhere there. I think the next step is, and this is like anything in, in the world. I don't think this is necessarily relevant to building a program, but it's relevant to anything you choose to do in life. I think you have to make a commitment that I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to make it real. I'm going to make my concept in my mind a right. reality. And that involves just simple things. Like first and foremost, say you're going to have a program and come up with a name. Like I think we should have a name and own it because now you know you found a space, you want to create this space. The next step is let's make a name. So for us, you know, our interventional oncology program um, started out being called an interventional endoscopy and endoscopic oncology program. That was the very beginning of the first name in like year one. Um, as we evolved and we started to do more third space, and I did a lot of ESD and we're doing endoluminal therapies and ablations, we decided to do uh, interventional oncology and surgical endoscopy. So we own those names. The reason why we own those names, if you think about what does surgical endoscopy mean to a patient, take all the medical jargon out. They think they're having a surgery if you're cutting something out of them, right? In the evolved right. ESD. So that, that was easy for us to explain to patients and patients gravitated towards it. So it doesn't really matter on getting hung up what the name is, whether you choose to say your program is going to be endoscopic oncology, it's a subset of your interventional program. If you want to use interventional oncology, I think that's very reasonable. I know sometimes radiologists use that. All of that's fine, but I would pick one of those two names and I would incorporate and embed it into a comprehensive interventional endoscopy program. And then I would go to making connections. That's step three. So step one, make a determination and create the space. Just make it real. Number two, own the name. Number three, I would make the connection. So you talked about this and you hit the nail on the head. Be at tumor board, start to call people up. Every time we get a case referred for EUS, I think it's worthwhile calling in the first year or so the medical oncologist, radiation oncologist, surgical oncologist, and talk about the case, but then also say, hey, you know, next time, maybe if the patient has a total duodenal obstruction, instead of doing a laparoscopic GJ, we can do an endoscopic ultrasound GJ so I can get them back on chemotherapy, or I can put a duodenal stent. Hey, I can actually do an ESD on this T1 cancer. I think it's important for them to know. So you start having these conversations. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, if you have the support of your uh, hospital system or your practice, you know, to host small gatherings or dinners or, you know, cocktail hours or whatever it is to talk about these things, you can grow. And then obviously a lot of fellows probably don't realize this, but your industry reps are very motivated for you to use their devices and their products. And so, you know, they can host something, obviously, you know, Everyone has, everyone has different feelings towards working with the industry or, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, that's a resource that a lot of people use and some people don't. It could be a benefit, you know, so I think that's there as well. I agree with you. I think any way in which you can make connections and create conversations is great. You know, for us, being involved with a not-for-profit health system, they're willing to host some of those dinners that you're speaking of. That's great. But if you don't have that opportunity, that doesn't mean that you don't have opportunity. And certainly, I can work with a device company can still be agnostic. It doesn't have to be biased. You know, they'll right. host it, but you can talk about whatever you need to talk about. And usually the best way is just talk about a disease state because it goes back to your point, which is 
you know, another big key aspect is to leverage your skill sets as endoscopists. So set up a dinner. It could be sponsored by a device company, company, or it could be through your not-for-profit health system, whatever that may be. Right. But make it about a topic. Just make it about esophageal cancer or pancreas cancer. Invite everyone. It's multidisciplinary. Right. But in that time, you know, if it's about cholangiocarcinoma, talk about the role of cholangioscopy. Talk about RFA ablation and what that can do. You know, talk about complex stenting and how that can open things up. There's an opportunity there. Um, and I think you're creating the conversation. The other big thing I think that's important if you want to set up a program is to be able to understand oncology from the medical, radiation, and surgical oncologist perspectives. And what I mean by that is, you know, anytime that you want to relate to people, you need to understand how things look from, from their standpoint, from being inside their shoes, from looking at from their lens, right? And if you know what their pressure points are, uh, then you're able to help them and provide value because that's how you can leverage our skill set. So for example, I was at Tour Award here in Colorado and I haven't even started and I was asked to come to a wireless surgeon. Of course, I'm going to say yes. And then there's a couple of cases that popped up that they immediately wanted help with. One was a caudate lesion that was small. Uh, it probably could get uh, radiation oncology SBRTs, the CyberKnife directed therapy, but they needed to, a biopsy and they needed fiducials. IR can do it, but it's a little more complex for them. And I was able to say, hey, we can do this easily with the US, all in one setting, biopsy it, get the answer. If it's canceled, I'll drop fiducials in. Right. But I couldn't do that if I didn't know what they needed, right? Their perspective. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, and uh, another uh, kind of point I wanted to get your take on, and, and Tafik and I talked about this briefly, but when we when we mentioned who, right? So tell me your thoughts on this. I, I, I have this belief that interventional endoscopy fellowship is going to change over the next five years. You know, right now you're seeing interest in different subspecialties. The biggest interest in that all the uh, applicants are wanting to learn about is third space, right? Everyone's kind of, that's the hot topic today. Um, but endobariatrics is kind of coming up the uh, pipeline as well. And now you have endoscopic oncology. Do you see a world in which our interventional fellows are maybe doing six months of general interventional endoscopy where you're learning your ERCPs, your EUSs, and then and then you're like subspecializing in one of these branches that I mentioned, you know, endoscopic oncology being one of them. And 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 so in terms of who's doing that, is this going to be a world where all the trainees are getting exposed to everything, but then your last six months, year, three, whatever it is, you're going to be focusing on a specific branch, advanced tissue resection versus third space versus oncology versus bariatrics. What what do you kind of see happening in that world? And and what's your take on that? Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I think you're opening my mind up to a lot of potential possibilities because it is nice to have a, a subspecialty or a niche focus, you know, within a group. I know that um, when we were at three, four interventional endoscopists, all of us had a little bit of a focus on something. We all did a US, ECP, colon, EMI. I think those are like the backbone of what we do in internal stenting. Um, but we have at least like research or intellectual interests, but perhaps like in something like an ESD, you know, I was the one person, like many programs, one out of four or something that have uh, that focus because that's related to oncology. So I think that's all possible. You know, what would be really great is I like to think freely and I think you're opening my mind up and I think we should be always open to the possibilities because our field will keep changing. You know, this is the beauty of interventional endoscopy. You can do things differently and it might be opening up a whole new paradigm for us, which is great. It's creativity that we do every day. I think on, on the other side, the, the yang to that yang would be that the reality is we need comprehensive interventional programs. They should be able to do a little bit of everything. And right. I think it alludes back to what we talked about with ASGE. So what does that, a comprehensive program look like? 
you know, it's kind of like a comprehensive GI program. You have IBD people, you have hepatologists, you have uh, people who do motility, you have people who do interventions, you have people who do general core work. And same thing, eventually an interventional program could have that, right? It could have the benign pancreas guys. It could have the medical pancreatologist that's more focused on that and research related to that. The Barrett's esophageal person. Um, I think it could have, you know, an endoscopic oncologist, endobariatrics, like you mentioned. There's all possibilities. Endohepatology, that's another one right. too. You know, yeah, it's just, it's, it's amazing what, you know, I mean, I, I trained 2009 to 10 in interventional and when I finished, you know, an interventionalist only did ERCP, EUS and, you know, interventional EUS was something that people kind of thought about, but we weren't doing. And all of a sudden, you know, fast forward to 14 years later and, uh, you know, all the crazy stuff people are doing, tunneling down the wall the esophagus into the GE junction or you know whatever we want to talk about it it's it's crazy and it's exciting to know what might happen the next 14 15 years that's going to be pretty cool um okay cool so let me ask you also um a, a little bit I, i'm going to diverge a little bit off endoscopic oncology and just kind of you know one of the things that i like to advise people on this podcast is that everybody should kind of be joining their societies asge acg but you and Shaman, as I mentioned, Dave and a bunch of other people started this, um, uh, the fight, uh, you know, Foundation for Interventional Therapeutic Endoscopy. I'm a member as well, uh, involved with you there too. Um, kind of maybe for the people who aren't familiar that are listening to this podcast, number one, what is it and why is it a good reason to join it and, and, and kind of, you know, what do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be biased. I think it's, it's a necessary program, right? And, and the reason why I think it's a necessary program is exactly what you mentioned. Um, and you alluded to the fact that our field is growing rapidly, right? It's changing and there's so much advancement in the field. We don't necessarily have a space that's 100% focused on that. I think ASG is extremely important and I've been an active member. Like I said, I'm leading the SIG. I've been on a, bu a bunch of committees and, and I really value it. I like ASG because it globally looks at endoscopy, which is a huge catchment that we need to focus on. And I think just as much endoscopy needs to be focused on the general work. In fact, 70, 80% of the work is general work, uppers and lowers that are happening in either ASCs or in any health system across the country. And so we need that focus and ASG supplies that. And then within that, there's interventional endoscopy. And so interventional endoscopy is changing rapidly. We require new devices. Oftentimes we're jerry-rigging devices to be able to perform things, right? I mean, we do it all the time. Yeah. We're things that we know we want to accomplish a task, but we're using things that um, maybe are not the ideal tool. So a great example would be we don't have steerable wires, but we're all doing access type procedures, right? And so how do we create a space where we can define and standardize the training and that we can make sure that the field continues to advance with safety and quality, that when we have ideas that could translate potentially to new devices, we can partner with industry, but not necessarily be biased by industry. But we do need industry to be successful because if you look at like interventional cardiology, but it's a great example, orthopedics, they are so closely intertwined with industry and industry can build new things like watchman devices, right? Yeah. Valves that can be put in rather uh, percutaneously. And those only happened because they created an environment that was so rich with it, capturing data, doing good trials, having good standards for training, that then they can be an investment from industry side on R&D so they can develop these new devices. And then they also get codes so then they get you know some sustainability economically for the physicians around the devices. So the goal of the fight is to create that type of an environment where we have standards of training, we have certification processes, we treat the field with the type of respect that we need because all of us who have gone through the training understand that this is a complex field. We can hurt people. We want to help people. And it's in innovating every day. 
And so that's what the real purpose of this is. We have a great five-year vision that was laid out by David Lorne, who's the president of the, of the Foundation for Interventional Therapeutic Endoscopy. It's meant to be a foundation. So as it grows, it's going to give back. It could, it could give back to societies. It could give back to special interest groups like uh, PCAN or ECAN, um, right. South Cancer Action Network or ACS, because we do a lot of cancer-related work. Um, but it's there really right now for free. So anybody who's a fourth-year trained interventional endoscopist could join fight. Um, I think the website is accessible to everyone at any time so they can absolutely join. Yeah. And I think it's important, I think, to hammer home the point that my understanding, and, and I believe this is what you're saying as well, is it's not meant to replace ASGE or ACG or any of that. It's not supposed to be, it's it's there to, it's almost like a layer on top. You know, it's, it's, it's another way to help out with the interventional endoscopy, but it'll support the other societies as needed as well. And, 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 you know, it's not one of those situations where you're either this society or that society, you know, you can be involved in both and be very active and, and, and the society can benefit from you and you can benefit from the society or the foundation. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think we're a unique field. We have ASLD, ACG, AGA, ASGE. So we have a whole lot of societies and many of us are members of multiple of those that yeah. have been out of conflict, right? There's plenty of room for everyone and a lot of opportunity for everyone to be engaged. In fact, the more that we can get a diversification of people engaged in these different societies, the better for all the societies, the better for the field. And the more they collaborate, the more inclusive we can be. I think it's just creates more opportunities for people to be involved. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that, I mean, <laughs> we have so many societies, it's hard. It's, it's, it's expensive to join all of them, but I think the yeah. other thing too is, it, it, you know, it, it, it's helpful, but one of the, the times where it's not is the example is with the pancreatic cysts. You know, ASGE has a certain set of guidelines, and then you have ACG with their guidelines, and they're not aligned, and they're kind of off on each other a little bit, and and that's where it gets really complicated in our world. But yeah, I mean, all the societies have great things to offer. And I think you know, if someone's listening hasn't joined, or you're a fellow, definitely join those societies and get involved if you can, and 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 it'll help yourself and everything else i will neil anything else you want to add or um i know you're you're coming up to phoenix in a couple weeks to um co-chair a course here do you want to talk about that or any other things that you have going on that you might want to share with the listening audience yeah i mean there's so many great courses right now so i'd be remiss to not talk about maybe a couple of them but you know one that's coming up here in february the weekend i think it's february 24th to be the 22nd 23rd uh is actually in phoenix Tivik Kashami, who's the chair of medicine and international endoscopist there at City of Hope in your home city, uh, he is the one of the co or really the founder of this course. And, and the course is meant to integrate interventional endoscopists with other GI oncologists, surgeons, colorectal surgeons, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, and so on. And so it's a multidisciplinary course. He's been very kind to invite me as course co chair uh, in all the years that it's been in inception. We've had it two years so far, and it's the third year. Uh, I highly recommend everyone to kind of at least consider going to the hybrid portion of it if you can't make it in person. But I think it's a great course. It's a, it's a beautiful place to visit. Uh, and then I think I have another course coming up after that in April, which is the WISE course, which is Sean Thucker's course um, and uh, Shalinder Singh's course. And this is their first year putting this on from West Virginia. That's in Pennsylvania. And it looks like an all-star lineup there as well. So I know there's a lot of courses, but um, I think it's a great time for people to like collaborate and get to meet no one or yeah, and, and you know, if nothing else for the Phoenix course, uh, it's uh, it's not a bad place to be in this time. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, we don't have what's going on behind you. So <laughs> like, when, I, when I started, I was like, what is that? I don't, I, I'm not familiar with that white substance falling from the sky. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. But anyway, so, okay. And then, you know, I want to thank you for spending time. I know it's a busy time for you and I know you're starting your job tomorrow officially, although you've been doing stuff for the last few weeks, but, you know, congratulations on the change and uh, thank you for coming out and, uh, and spending some time with me. And I really appreciate it. Um, and then one other thing that I just always say at the end of every podcast is for the listening audience, you know, mental health in amongst physicians is a huge topic. We are dealing with, uh, basically an epidemic of physician burnout and suicides. And uh, if you're struggling, please reach out to somebody, uh, you know, either through social media, you can reach out to any of us or reach out to your local 800 numbers and, you know, just get some help if you're struggling. So uh, with that, I want to thank you, Neil. And uh, uh, until next time. Thank you so much for having